Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 15 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. I'm joined by Fred Burton, former deputy chief for the U.S. State Department's Diplomatic Security Service, currently the executive director of the Center for Protective Intelligence at Ontic, as well as the author of four nonfiction books about counterterrorism and intelligence matters. I invited Fred on the podcast today to talk about the subject of his book, Chasing Shadows, a special agent's lifelong hunt to bring a Cold War assassin to justice. Fred, I know you're a very busy man, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today about this incredible story. You're very kind, Justin. I really, really appreciate you having me on. Thanks. I, I just finished this book not too long ago, and I knew that I had to reach out to you for sure because of this is a story that I knew people would love. So Chasing Shadows is about the 1973 murder of an Israeli Air Force officer named Yosef Alon, which took place in Bethesda, Maryland. And I understand that you have a personal connection to this case. Can you tell us all about how you first learned about this murder? Sure can, Justin. Basically, Colonel Alon lived in my neighborhood in an area where I grew up. And I would subsequently learn that his oldest daughter was actually in high school with me at the time of his murder. But you know, this is 1973, before the internet, and we basically had two newspapers in those days, the Washington Post, which came in the morning, and then the Washington Star, which came at night, and then you had local radio. Colonel Alon was murdered uh, as he pulled into the driveway of his home late at night. A gunman stepped out of the bushes and fired multiple rounds into Colonel Alon. i come to know him as Joe, and fled into the into the darkness of the night, and his wife and children rushed out onto uh, the front lawn where, where Joe died, and the Montgomery County, Maryland Police Department responded, as well as the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad, and I would later join the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad, actually two years later, uh, in 1975. I later became a Montgomery County police officer in the jurisdiction where the murder took place. So I have very long and strong ties from a historical perspective to to the case. Okay, so this happened while you were still a teenager. And then later on, you joined the organizations that were investigated to begin with, or that initially responded to the case to begin with. Yeah, that's correct. And in the course of putting Chasing Shadows together, I went back and located uh, the original ambulance crew from my old volunteer organization and interviewed them in connection to the case, as well as the original police officers that responded the night Joe was killed. And I was able to find uh, the original FBI agent that was assigned to a resident agency at the time, and he responded to the case a wonderful man. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away not too long ago. His name was Stan Ornstein. And after the book came out, 
Justin. We actually had uh, somewhat of a reunion at the house, which uh, was very interesting. Uh, One of the original Rescue Squad members that was there that night, the retired FBI agent, Stan Ornstein, the original cold case detective, Ed Golian, as well as Joe's two youngest sisters and I, we all met at the location and to kind of go over the case. Hmm. That must have been great for them. I know that you were in contact with them, but with his daughters quite a bit over the years. And I'm just shocked at how many different twists and turns this case has taken over the years. So going all the way back to the beginning, for one thing, like Joe Alon, he wasn't even born with the name Joe Alon. Is that right? Can you tell me a little bit about his story right from the beginning? Yeah, like so many Israelis from that generation, Justin, uh, Colonel Alon was born Joe Plasek uh, in Czechoslovakia. Of course, not everybody in his family uh, survived the, the Holocaust. And in fact, his father had been killed. And Joe immigrated to uh, the nation state of Israel at the time and became a pilot. And he actually was part of the uh, original Israeli Air Force. He fought in three wars and ended up being a squadron commander. And in the course of putting the story together, one thing about the Israeli Air Force that a a lot of your listeners probably are aware of, but if not, I'll share that with them, is that the the Israeli Air Force is the protector of the state of Israel, meaning they they rely heavily on their air assets, and and Joe was part of the first part of that, and really known as uh, a hero in the Israeli Air Force and within the IDF circles. And as a result of not only his history and his heroism in the wars, he was assigned to this very high-profile position Uh, which was uh, being the military attache to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. And not everybody gets those kinds of jobs, uh, especially an assignment because of our special relationship with Israel to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. So Joe was able to not only uh, help create the Israeli Air Force, he was also a diplomat uh, at the time of his death. Yeah, for for a diplomat to be murdered over here is is an enormous enormous situation, honestly. So, do you know what he was working on exactly at the time of his death? What was he doing over here at the Israeli embassy? Yeah, that's really a great question, Justin. And as we were talking a little bit uh, off the air, subsequent to the book being published, there's been all kinds of new information and leads surface, which is most interesting connected to the case. But Joe had uh, responsibility for liaison to the Pentagon, obviously, because of the nature of his assignment. And, you know, when you start looking at military attaches in general, they, they wear many, many hats. In many ways, yes, they're supposed to have air quote liaison with their counterparts in whatever government uh, that hosts them, in this case, the U.S., but they also fulfill an intelligence mandate, meaning there's a fine line between being a intelligence officer, say, for example, with the Israeli Mossad, and also being uh, an intelligence officer with military intelligence, meaning it kind of all bleeds in together 
So Joe's duties were multifaceted. And curiously, in 1973, it's, it's really a fascinating time in diplomatic protection history because diplomats in those days lived out on the economy. Joe was living in a rental house in a very, very quiet neighborhood without protection. His death caused uh, some drastic shifts in Israeli security. But at the time of his death, he literally was listed in the uh, local phone book in those days, which was unbelievable if you come to think of it. So you could easily find him if you wanted to. He lived in a very quiet neighborhood. And and for those of you not familiar with the neighborhood, this is your picturesque kind of very small, slow neighborhood, not a lot of traffic, very quiet. These kinds of events aren't supposed to happen in these kinds of towns around America, but unfortunately they do. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us, you mentioned a little bit that there was somebody waiting for him outside of his house. So very much a premeditated kind of thing. Can you take us back to the actual night that he died and what the initial response was and what the initial focus of the investigation was, for example? Sure. Joe and his wife, Deborah, were late attendees to a diplomatic reception, which, as the crow flies, was probably no more than three miles at at best from Joe's house at another Israeli diplomat's house. It's kind of interesting as to how that came about. He initially wasn't planning to go, but then he decided to go. And so he shows up for this going away party. Quite frankly, he had a little bit too much to drink, but, you know, in those days... You know, who wasn't driving around drinking at, at, at times, and especially after a diplomatic reception. And he drove himself back to his house. Devorah was in the right front seat. He pulled into the driveway. Devorah got out of the car and started walking towards the front door. Joe kind of reached around to get his jacket out of the back seat. And within, uh, having stood there uh, a lot and stared at this, you're probably looking at a distance of uh, anywhere from five to seven feet. There was a bush and a lone gunman stepped out of the bush and fired multiple rounds into the car, into Joe. And then the shooter, the gunman, fled on foot to a getaway car that sped down the street. And Just for the sake of geography from the crime scene perspective, this area is very, very close to the District of Columbia line, the D.C. line. It was a very blue-collar kind of neighborhood at the time, a lot of working-class people, but then again, smattered with diplomats. And you could easily jump across borders and get into D.C., or you could jump on a highway and very quickly get onto the Capitol Beltway and get into Northern Virginia. So which direction the gunman in the car fled. We were never able to figure out the murder weapon has never been recovered, nor has the getaway car. Hmm. So was this seen as a political assassination right off the bat? I mean, did the FBI get involved immediately or was it like a local murder under local jurisdiction? Well, the first responders was the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad who picked up Joe and transported him to Suburban Hospital there in Bethesda, Maryland. And then Old Rescue 17, which was kind of a rescue truck, was on the on site with their light unit. And the police department initially responded. 
So did the duty detective. And then the FBI was notified once they learned from Devorah that Colonel Alon was a diplomat. And literally, the only FBI response consisted of this single FBI agent that came to the scene. And he had a very funny story that I'll share with with your listeners, Justin. He had never investigated a murder. I mean, the FBI in those days typically didn't do that. They they were doing, you know, intelligence-related work. Uh, he was working a lot of espionage cases. He was working a lot of Watergate leads at the time. And he said he pulled up on the scene, and here he is, you know, with the FBI. And, of course, everybody expects you to know how to, to do things properly. And he said he had to just step out and kind of orient himself for a bit. And he, he decided to just kind of pull out his Polaroid camera and his tape measure and walk around while he kind of collected his thoughts remembering what he had learned at the FBI Academy in Quantico. And so the case was not treated at first as an act of international terror. It was covered as a homicide in the state of Maryland. And then ultimately, the FBI also had concurrent jurisdiction under what is called a protection of foreign officials violation. I forget the 18 USC code off the top of my head. But also this, in those kinds of cases, the, the Secret Service and, and the State Department also get involved because they're ultimately responsible for the protection of all resident foreign officials in the United States. So if you fast forward a few years, I left the Montgomery County Police Department and I became a special agent with the State Department. And I actually reopened the case while I was an agent. Hmm. So this was one that you had grown up with and was never adequately solved. And so you decided to take another look at it? I did. And I must say that, you know, again, this is 1986. There is no internet. All of our files are uh, literally paper paper case files with random open source reports from the Washington Post, the Washington Star. I think we might've had a Reuters document stuck in there. We had some preliminary information from the Montgomery County Police, part of the original original reports. And, and I remember looking at my boss at the time, and we had so much terrorism around the world in the 80s. And there just, quite frankly, wasn't a lot of time to go back to some of these cold cases. So, you know, this was 1986, 85, 86 timeframe. And Joe now, you know, had been murdered in 73. And... In the 80s, we were just rocked with terrorism from embassy bombings to hijackings to hostage takings. And so I spent as much time as I could allow working on the case in between real world terrorism. And it's something I really regret to this day, Justin. I, I've apologized to the Elan family, to the daughters, that quite frankly, if I had done a better job in the 80s looking into this case, maybe the information would have been fresher maybe I could have done more. So I harbor a tremendous amount of guilt for not doing more when I was in an official capacity to do so. Hmm. So yeah, that, that's, that's understandable, but it was something that you took on, you know, over and above your normal duties, I think. So I'm sure that they're very happy that someone was looking into it all those years later. And speaking of them, they were very passionately searching for answers to their 
husband's death, their father's death as well all that time. So what exactly happened with Devorah and with Joe's daughters as well during this time period? Well, unfortunately, by the time I got engaged with the family, Devorah had passed away, but the youngest daughter and the middle daughter had been on this hunt for justice or for information as to what happened to their father for years and almost as many years as, as I, if not longer, in that they always had questions as to what happened. I mean, if you sit back and think of this in context of, let's put it in perspective, Ambassador Stevens is killed in Benghazi. Look at the outrage and the public kind of scrutiny over who knew what and when and so forth. And here you had an Israeli diplomat literally gunned down on the front lawn of his house. And there was very little attention paid to the case. And, you know, I said, I've said this before, a, a lot of it is generational and just technology or a lack thereof, a lack of forensics. But, you know, today that case would be solved. You know, there would have been a hundred FBI agents on the scene with, you know, their crime scene vans and everybody from NSA to the CIA to the State Department engaged. In those days, uh, the system was not built to investigate an act of international terrorism on U.S. soil. Hmm. Yeah, because this is not, this is a very new situation for us, right? Like a potentially a politically motivated murder happening of an Israeli diplomat over here. I don't think anything like that had occurred inside the U.S. up to that point. Is that right? That's correct. Now, we certainly had a nation under fire, meaning if you go back to the late 60s and the early 70s, we had the weather underground that had carried out countless bombings to include the Pentagon and the State Department. You had Dr. Timothy Leary. You had the Black Panther Party, specifically the Cleaver faction. You had all kinds of domestic unrest and demonstrations as a result of Vietnam War protests. And so you, you did have tremendous upheaval here in the United States, but not a diplomat killed on U.S. soil such as this. And that's bad enough, but also a decorated war hero killed on U.S. soil and where it's our government's responsibility to protect foreign diplomats on U.S. soil. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he certainly... Well, as you said, um, a lot of changes were made to the security situation after that, and it makes perfect sense in hindsight that there should have been a little bit more care taken to avoid just this kind of situation. So as you mentioned, there wasn't a huge amount of attention here in the U.S., but even in Israel, it seems like from the book, this case didn't garner as much as attention as, as you might have expected when they were already under attack in so many places around the world in the 1970s. Is that one of the reasons that, or what do you think is the reason for that exactly? Well, I think politics, bandwidth, lack of intelligence, it, it's all part and parcel from my eyes after thinking of this case for now a very long time, Justin, meaning you had the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre where the 11 Israeli athletes were murdered. You had the Israeli uh, Wrath of God squad teams or committee X teams, however you want to look at them, you know, fanning out around the world uh, to hunt down those responsible for the murder of the Olympic athletes. And you had a nation that was on a war footing 
you know, leading up to uh, the 73 war, namely Israel. I mean, Israel had a lot on their plate. And a diplomat getting killed a long way from home, you could see how that would be a challenging case to investigate. If you flip the equation, you know, part of my duties when I was a counterterrorism agent was to go around the world and investigate attacks on American diplomats around the world. You were really, really hard pressed to get help at times. There was always a lack of forensics. There was at times a lack of will or interest. And don't get me wrong, I think people did the best job that they could, such as the original FBI agent, Stan Ornstein, the Montgomery County Police Cold Case Section, uh, ultimately moved heaven and earth to try to get help and assistance in this case. But this is this kind of problem, meaning if you have an internationally protected person, a diplomat that's a victim of international terror, how does a local police do that without a lot of cooperation, either from the federal government, namely the FBI, and to include, in many ways, the intelligence community like the CIA? And your local police department just does not have that kind of capabilities. And hell, even the original FBI agent didn't have that kind of capability. So how are you going to expect a detective to be able to solve this case if the gunman and his accomplices, you know, have fled the United States? Yeah, that makes perfect sense, honestly. If you can't find the murder weapon, like you mentioned, if you can't ever find the suspects, then and they're already gone out of the country, especially if there's really not so much that a, a county sheriff's department can do. But you ended up, I mean, just due to your tenacity over the years, you were able to develop a lot of more information on this case with a lot of kind of international implications. So can you tell us what you found once you really started digging into all this? Well, I, I enjoy cold case work. I, I like trying to put pieces of these unsolved puzzle, puzzles together. And I just started going back to the night in question. I just started re-interviewing people. I had a tremendous amount of help and assistance from some dogged journalists. For example, Randy Hershaft at the Associated Press. Adam Goldman at the time was, the, was at the Associated Press. I believe Adam is now with the New York Times. And I also worked hand in glove and closely with Detective Ed Golian at the Montgomery County Police Cold Case Section. I think I brought my knowledge of international events and how the international system works and where we could go to try to find data and information. And I slowly started to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and I slowly just started to develop some contacts that pretty much told me that the organization that had been responsible for the murder of the 11 Olympic athletes in Munich had also been responsible for the murder of Colonel Joe Alon in 1973. And that group is known as the Black September Organization. And it's a group in a very short period of time in the early to mid-1970s were carrying out a global wave of terror you know, which includes uh, hijackings and assassinations and bombings. And they pretty much declared war on the state of Israel. They were the PLO's covert intelligence operations unit, for lack of better words, that basically PLO chairman Arafat sanctioned and encouraged their existence. And their job was to take the fight to Israel 
wherever they could. And they did a pretty good job of being highly successful. You know, having said that, I will say this, the Israelis did a, a great job of hunting down and killing many of those responsible for the attacks. So Black September, I've, I'm familiar with them somewhat, of course, already. I know that they were very high profile. They were very effective and they were carrying out missions all over the world. But if it is Black September that did this, was this the first and maybe the only time in which this terror group operated inside the United States? Or were there other incidents as well? There has not been, to the best of my knowledge, another similar high-profile assassination carried out by Black September on U.S. soil. Having said that, there has been some plots thwarted. For example, there was an effort on the part of the organization to attempt to assassinate Golda Meir in New York City uh, in the 70s with some car bombs that were placed that were fortunately uncovered ahead of time. The group had a operational capability inside the United States that had tentacles to other radical groups. They kind of all swam in the same kind of seas Black September did. The group's tactical commander was an individual by the name of Ali Hassan Salome, also known as the Red Prince. And he was a fascinating character in that he ultimately became uh, an asset for the Central Intelligence Agency and was uh, instrumental in even protecting American diplomats in, in Lebanon at one point in time. And so you had this group that did have a very robust international capability with cells which ranged from Khartoum to Bangkok throughout Western Europe. And it was, you know, for the 1970s, one would have to say that it had a very, very effective and robust intelligence network that was predominantly focused on terror. Hmm. Okay. They were able to operate very, I don't know if I'd say easily, but they were very capable in Europe. But you, know, you mentioned the failed plot against Golda Meir at the airport here. So it was difficult for them to operate in the U.S. Is there anything in particular that made targeting Joe Alon worth it to them to try a, an operation here in the United States? Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. You can go back to, there was another senior black September official by the name of Abu Iyad. And even in his biography, talks about the Israeli bombing of Palestinian targets and how that was so devastating to the Palestinians. And so when you look at a group like Black September, they had carried out what at the time had been an event in Munich that literally shocked the world. So it should come to no surprise to anybody that they were capable of assassinating an Israeli diplomat. And in fact, they were successful in carrying out attacks on other Israeli intelligence officials uh, throughout Europe. And they did a good job at, at finding targets, picking high profile targets, and carrying them out. You know, this is the same group that literally took over a embassy in Khartoum and assassinated two U.S. diplomats. And they were also responsible for the facility seizure and hostage taking of the Israeli embassy in Bangkok. So for them to add Colonel Alon to the list 
to the list of their target set is kind of fits their tempo and their operational capabilities. It, their attacks were not aspirational by any stretch of the imagination. Their attacks were operational and effective. Yeah, they were they were very calculating and they were also willing to take, from what I can tell, willing to take very big risks for these potentially very big gains as well. And it seems like it paid off for them on a number of occasions as well, like that uh, taking over the embassy in Bangkok, for example. That's a very, very high profile attack in a part of the world that they normally would have nothing to do with, but they made it happen for sure. I believe it was George Habash of the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine, or maybe it was uh, Wadi Haddad. I I get some of their mis- their statements mixed up at times, but one of them said words to the effect of, if you kill a Jew outside of Israel, it resonates loudly around the world. So that's where we need to start targeting our operations. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. They're really striking fear in the hearts of people all over the world, make them feel like they can be reached anywhere. So was Joe picked because he was easily found or was he picked because of any of the work that he was involved in or had been involved in in the past? Oh, Justin, I've I've thought of that topic for a long time. And I think it's a multifaceted kind of response from my perspective. And and literally, last week, I'm, I was talking to Detective Ed Golian, who's since retired on this case, and we still wonder that, that, about that topic. Uh, Joe, in many ways, uh, was a perfect target. If you think in context of some of the cases that I've worked, such as the Nordine case in Athens and then the case in the Philippines with uh, our military attache, the CIA chief kidnapped and murdered in Beirut, the killing of the CIA chief in Athens, Welch. He was a perfect target to pick. Here you're going to choose a military representative outside of the state of Israel, right in the highest profile capital of the world, Washington, D.C. So he was in many ways a brilliant target. Having said that, he also was accessible. Uh, He lived out on the economy. For the most part, he was not very security conscious. There was no security protection in place at his house. There was no alarm system for that matter. These are the days before cell phones, for goodness sake. So you could find him in the phone book. You know, is it, you know, could he have been set up by, let's say, a double agent that he may have been working? For sure. I found no evidence of that per se, but I don't think they can be ruled out. But if you are Black September and, and you and I are, are part of that organization and we want to strike fear in the heart of Israel and fire a shot across the U.S. bow, you would be hard-pressed to not find a better target than Colonel Alon. Yeah, absolutely. When you put it like that, it really makes perfect sense why they would take a chance on on another operation like this, especially when you see that it, it succeeded so well, so spectacularly. So you mentioned that he could have potentially been identified by a double agent. Do you think that he was involved in intelligence collection for Israel while he was over here and working as a diplomat? I do. I think that it's the nature of the business. Uh, Israel is a small country. And in 1973, their intelligence apparatus is certainly, was certainly not as sophisticated as it is today. They certainly take advantage of levering all, leveraging all of their intelligence and military assets, especially in this time period. You know, I think there's a 
a fine line at times between liaison and intelligence, Justin. And there's no doubt in my mind that he was engaged in air quotes, intelligence-related activities while he's here. It's the nature of the job. It was the nature of the of the mindset for the protection of the state of Israel. And, and Joe was a patriot. And, you know, I have no doubt that he did whatever he needed to do to help the survival of the state of Israel. Sure, that makes sense. I think that attaches of all countries are trained intelligence collectors as well. So it certainly makes sense. Did you, but you never found out anything that he specifically was working on was ever uncovered by you or by uh, Goldman, for example? The things that we saw and were pretty much reconstructed from interviews with various liaison counterparts with the U.S. Air Force were things that you would describe as normal duties, such as aircraft, propulsion systems, state of the art and certain you know, kind of industries and sectors pertaining to the aviation sector in general. Curiously, there were some trips on Joe's calendar, Colonel Lon's calendar, that we were never able to get to the bottom of. He made several trips out to California, for example. Uh, I don't know why. There were some references for possible travel. We don't know if he ever went to South Africa, which is fascinating to me the more that you think about that in context with how Israel was able to cobble together what most believe to be a nuclear device with the help of the South African Intelligence Service. So was Joe involved in in that as well? I don't know. I, I just didn't fall off that turnip truck to think that it's not beyond the realm of possibilities. Having said that, I have no evidence that he was per se. So there was just some unusual travel that uh, we'll never know the answers to those questions, I'm sad to say. Hmm. That's unfortunate. That's a really interesting thread right there. I don't even know if you mentioned that in the book, did you, the South Africa connection? I don't recall seeing No, it. it was something that subsequent to the book release that I really started to go back for and through in great detail. And, you know, when you get, get a book done, Justin, there's always these loose ends. And once you start pulling these threads, they just seem to continue and continue and unravel and unravel. And this book has been like that in that people have come forward that heard the gunshots that night. Others knew Joe. In fact, I'm in almost a daily exchange now with the son of a highly decorated military official who was close friends with Colonel Olan. He was assigned to the Pentagon. He was involved in all kinds of interesting operations at the Pentagon. We know that he and Joe were friends. We know that they corresponded a lot, but the nature of their discussions, we have no idea what they were. And so, you know, that's the kind of cases this this has been about. You know, subsequent to the book being written, for example, I was contacted by the FBI in Paris who asked me to sign some books for them, copies of Chasing Shadows, which I did. Uh, I shipped them over. They uh, were able to talk to Carlos the Jackal, who passed on some additional information pertaining to what he believed had happened to Colonel Alon. He painted a picture that indicated that others, perhaps Americans, had also been engaged in, in either the casing of Colonel Alon or actually engaged in the case 
it's been one of those kinds of stories that I still have a lot of uh, loose ends that I'm fairly optimistic that as the story continues to perpetuate, which I significantly thank you about for caring, because every time we get new media surrounding the story, there's like a new nugget that surfaced. So um, I want to thank you for, for doing that and, and for showing your interest in Joe's case as well. Absolutely. It's, it's hard not to be interested in this case, honestly. And your book lays out so many other things that we haven't even discussed, like the, the tie-ins to the Israeli Air Force and their tactics over Middle East and their various conflicts and how those might have tied into major strategic changes that Joe was involved in. And it's really, really fascinating how this case just kind of spans the entire world and spans multiple conflicts and multiple threat groups, multiple state actors, really some amazing stuff there. So after all of these years of investigating, were you able to finally identify the shooter that night? I was. And that to me was, I never thought I would get there, Justin, but I did. I was able to uh, identify the individual who pulled the trigger. I was never able to identify, I haven't been thus far, the wheel man or those individuals that may have been involved in the surveillance of Colonel Alon, although I'm a little bit closer to that today than I was before. I was also able to uncover through some great help with a very good investigative journalist friends of mine, some recently declassified briefing memos that were done a few years after the murder from the CIA to the Hill as to who had been responsible for the murder of Colonel Alon, which corroborated my findings. And so, you know, in these kinds of cases, I, I think at best you can only hope for 85 to 90% of the facts. I think I'm there with that. I think there's a portion that I'll never know the answer to. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. And, you know, part of that is because of the amount of time that has passed. But I think that, you know, your work has shed so much more light on something that otherwise would never have been known. So I know that his family is appreciative and the Israeli government, I'm sure, is interested to know what you found. And the readers are certainly going to be interested and the listeners today as well are certainly going to be interested in what you found. So I really appreciate as someone who just got involved, you know, this past week, so to speak, in something that you've been investigating for decades, I really appreciate your tenacity in this and shedding light on something that had kind of disappeared from most people's minds about what really went on in the 70s between Israel, Palestine, Black September, Munich, everything. It really ties it all together. And it's a fascinating story for sure. Well, thank you very much for that, Justin. I, I am proud that I was able to get the the book published in Israel. There's a Hebrew version of Chasing Shadows, which was awesome for the Alon family to get done for a while. It was actually, the book was on the official website of the Israeli Air Force. And oh, wow. that is a tremendous accomplishment, I think. And I was somewhat surprised that, that the book was able to get printed in Israel, but I think it's the kind of story that resonates. So I really, really appreciate your interest in keeping uh, Joe's memory alive. And with luck, somebody will hear this podcast and remember something from that incident. And I'd love to hear from them. <laughs> okay. I will definitely make that point when I post about this as well and promote it a little bit. 
So thank you so much for coming on today. Are you working on another book right now as well? Have you, are you still following up on Joe's case? Well, uh, I think, Justin, Joe's case will haunt me to the day I die in many ways, but I am working on a new book. I'm back in this same time period. I think that I'll have some additional thoughts on this case uh, along with a couple others that I've stumbled upon in all of my books. I always try to choose stories that I think need to be told on things that have been long forgotten. I'm a firm believer that some stories need to be told. I agree completely. That's, that's one of the reasons that I do what I do, as a matter of fact, but to a, a lesser extent than what you've done. But there are a lot of stories out there that people have forgotten about and that need to be brought to light to give us a little perspective on what's going on right now, I think for sure. So I, I agree with you completely on that one. Well, thank you so much. Sure, absolutely. So where can people find you if they want to learn more about this? Where can they find your book? Where can they connect with you online if they want to? Well, they can certainly visit my website, which is officialfredburton.com, officialfredburton.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'd love to have all your listeners try to follow me in both places. So uh, that's very kind of you to make that offer. And my book's all available at your usual locations, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through my publishers. Great. Well, I'm really looking forward to the next book, Fred. I really appreciate it. And uh, maybe one day we can talk about the next one on this podcast as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101 or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Justin C. and Al M. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.